Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Lovely to be here with you all. And if you're joining us online, welcome, wherever you are, wherever that camera is. Um, it is an absolute joy to be here with you tonight and share this passage with you, which is just so filled with amazing truth uh, for us. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your spirit. And I ask that you would move in power as I speak tonight amongst your people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have titled this sermon, The Power and Purpose of Prayer. And I won't pull any punches. I'm gonna actually tell you what I think the power and purpose of prayer is in a succinct answer up front. I think it's the intimacy and oneness with God the Father that we gain when we pray. So why don't we just do a very quick recap of how we got here. If you've been with us, you'll know this, but uh, just bear with me, I'll be very brief. Um, Peter, uh, Heal, and John are going to the temple gate. They heal a crippled man who's been crippled for decades, and um, which is amazing. He stands up, and then they are essentially, uh, Peter gives a bit of a talk to the onlookers, and then they're essentially hauled before the Sanhedrin and punished for this act. Right? And we, you probably heard last week what happens there uh, before the Sanhedrin. And now they've arrived at this place back with the believers, back with their brothers and sisters, and start to pray. Um, so what I'd like to do as we begin this, and I think it's a really useful definition that I've found on prayer. And, you know, there is no sort of Bible definition, but I thought this was really helpful from J.I. Packer. He says, God made us and has redeemed us for fellowship with himself. And that is what prayer is. God speaks to us in and through the contents of the Bible, which the Holy Spirit opens up and applies to us and enables us to understand. We then speak to God about himself and ourselves and people in his world, shaping what we say as a response to what he has said. This unique form of two-way conversation continues as long as life lasts. I thought that was pretty succinct and a neat way to sum that up. And I think that really comes through here. So we're gonna dig into this a little bit. One note, um, there's no formula. I, I do have a bit of a structure to this, but there is no formula. Um, so I wanna be careful about there appearing to be a very strict prescribed way to pray. There are many different types of prayers, and some of which I'll, I'll touch on this evening. Um, and I'm going to start off with a little bit of a note that I want, to, I want you to keep in the back of your head. 
hopefully it spurs a bit of thought. It might be a bit provocative. Don't judge a prayer by its answer. Don't judge a prayer by its answer. So let's dig right into this. Um, the first thing that I've noticed, if we see here, um, is that they declare. There's a declaration, right? And you can also call it um, an acclamation. You know, Jesus, when he teaches the disciples to pray, says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. He's declaring who God is. In, there's so much summed up in that opening line of the, of the um, prayer. He's our Father. He is in heaven, right? And they're declaring here who God is, this acclamation, which, which I looked up the definition of and I thought was quite cool. It's to publicly and enthusiastically praise. And that's what we're called to do, to acclaim who God is, to acclaim what he's done. And we see that very clearly here in verse 24. And it's so easy to miss, and it's been touched on already, who God is, sovereign Lord. I love that he says sovereign Lord. Why? Because that's who he is. He's absolute. He's supreme. He's unlimited. There's nothing he can't do. Peter, in a sense, of remi is, is reminding himself who God is. He's also reminding God, this is who you are. He's telling God, you are sovereign. It's beautiful, and it's a wonderful, simple little way to start a prayer. And we actually see this, and we'll touch on it a little later, throughout the scriptures when God's people pray to him. And then what he has done, verse 24, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Again, seems kind of out of place. But, I mean, he was just about to be, you know, he was imprisoned. He was about to be potentially killed. And he's telling God, and he's crying out, or they are crying out. They're telling God, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. It's just a reminder of who he is, of what he's done, of how powerful he is, and that he's at work. So he's creator of all. He has, and if you go on through the passage, he is created, he is spoken, he's anointed, he's decided, we see later on. And I think this is really important for us. It seems, again, very simple, but to not just recount, I think it's important to recount in history what we know God has done through Scripture, but also in our own lives to recount what he's done for us. And we all have testimonies of God's faithfulness and his goodness to us, how he's delivered us from sin and death, first and foremost, but from even circumstances in our lives that are nothing compared to sin and death. Um, and, and I just want to encourage you to do this, to recount, to remember. You know, some people build altars, some people have little reminders, but to remember what God has done for you personally, as well as throughout Scripture for his people. I sat... Um, a little over a week ago, it was a Sunday, a Saturday ago, right, when we sat, when we had our church gathering, and I sat in that corner, and Rupert and Liz know this, and Rachel and I heard the most amazing testimony from someone, and this person didn't really even set out, I, I kind of put her on the spot a bit, um, because she gave us a bit of a clue, but her testimony was amazing about God's faithfulness, about God tracking her down, showing her his love through all of these amazing circumstances. And we encouraged her afterwards to tell this story to others and to herself, to remind herself how faithful God has been to her. And I would just encourage you to do that. Everyone has a testimony. Some are not, mine is not cataclysmic, but everyone has a testimony of God's faithfulness. So remember your testimony. Tell, recount to God how he's um, saved you, how he has been faithful to you and to his people throughout history. <clears throat> and I think, you know, we can't sort of ignore 
uh, he hits you right up with it in verse 25, the scripture that he uses here. Uh, I'll make a statement that, again, it might be a bit provocative, but I'll say it. Scripture is the fuel for prayer. I really believe that. And we heard that in the definition up front that J.I. Packer uses. But to pray without Scripture is really hard to, um, to stay faithful to who God is, to who we're talking to, and also to recount all of these things that he's done through history. We have to be in the Word and know what he's done. Peter quotes, again, if you look at this, this little brief of the most amazing chapters, 2, 3, and 4, Peter quotes Scripture throughout this period, before the crowd, when he preaches that amazing sermon. It's littered with Scripture verses and passages, and 3,000 people believe. When he's, um, after he heals the beggar, he has the onlookers there sort of going, oh my gosh, and he quotes Scripture to them. In chapter 4, he's hauled before the Sanhedrin. He quotes Scripture to them. And here again, he's with the believers. They're all together, and they're quoting Scripture to the Lord. So, and there are many other um, examples of this. Again, we'll look at one or two, but I think this is, this is critical. And so again, I would, I would ask you the question, and myself the question, are you in the Word enough? Are we in the Word enough so that it pours from our lips? I think if we are, prayer will actually be natural. We'll find ourselves praying more, not just praying in quiet on our knees, but praying while we walk, praying while we work, because the scripture is that fuel that we need to be one with God, to be intimate with him. It's how we know who he is and what he's done. <clears throat> so it informs our understanding of the character and the, the faithfulness of God. It also reminds us, and we see this here in verse 27, of the spiritual battle that is going on around us at all times. And sometimes that looks like a, um, a human battle or a materialistic battle, but it's always spiritual, right? Paul speaks about that uh, in his letters as well. In verse 27, we see here, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a spiritual battle. It, of course, involved people, but it was spiritual at heart and at the core. And, and to be reminded of that is critical because we, we, we live as spirits and we live as God's people and we will be attacked. There is evil in the world and there is good. Thankfully, we know the outcome. We know that God reigns. And that is the next thing that we need to read. We can't stop in verse 27. They did, in verse 28, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Again, I think it's easy to miss, but we have to remind ourselves that God is in control. God is supreme, even over sin, especially over sin. That's why he sent Jesus. But if he could be using what could arguably be the most heinous sin ever committed, the brutal execution and wrongful conviction <clears throat> of the only innocent, truly innocent person that ever walked the earth, and God himself, then he can certainly use our sin. This is, this is no license to sin, of course. But again, Paul speaks about that. But he can use our sin. He can use the sins of others around us and committed against us even as part of his perfect plan <clears throat> to bring about what is good for his people and his own glory. And, you know, there, th this is sometimes hard truth for all of us. But there's an amazing practical aspect to it. And the practical aspect is when we 
do this, we remind ourselves of who God is, of what he has done, of his supremacy in this fallen, broken, horrible world at times, then we're able to rest in him and lean on him and trust in him because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. But, there's always a but, this requires us to be real, authentic, honest with God. I can take one sip here. I think, again, I've stated this, but the believers, they share their context. Like, God doesn't need to know their context. <laughs> he knows it already. Why are they telling him this? They're being honest. They're being raw. I mean, if we look at the Psalms, they're just rife with people crying out, rending their hearts before God, shaking their fists at him. And God actually invites us to do that as long as we land in the right place. But in him, when we know him, we can do that because we're his children. We're allowed to do that. Not just allowed to do it, we're called to do it. So we need to be bringing our circumstances before the Lord and stating what seems to be the obvious before him. Our experiences, our fears, and our doubts. So again, I would pause here and ask each one of us, are we really being honest with God in our prayer time? I think, for me, I find myself falling into rote kind of structures of my own prayers. Whatever little structure I have in the morning, I just fall into it. And I can easily not kind of be authentic and natural and, and placing before God my doubts and my fears for the day, for my life, for my family. But we're called to do that. So again, I would encourage you to do it because he's our father. He wants to hear what's on your heart. He wants to hear what your concerns are. And he wants to carry them. He says to cast our cares on him. We sing that wonderful song with the children. I love that song. I, I weep when we sing that song. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. It's a straight scripture verse. That's how we do it, by being open and honest with him, by being real before him and transferring that burden to him. And then we take on his burden, which is light as he tells us. I have a bit of a funny story at this stage. Uh, I think it's funny. I was there. Uh, Rachel and I were in New York City about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and I'll try to keep this really short, but it's going to sound crazy. We were essentially, I was driving the car with one of my best friends in the front seat and Rachel and his wife in the back. And we were essentially apprehended by what turned out to be um, false police officers, if you could believe this. Uh, but it's New York City, anything can happen in New York City. But for the time we were pulled over, we knew something was odd. They, they, they weren't in uniform, there wasn't really a badge that I saw for more than a split second. And it was quite scary. It was, it, I mean, I, I didn't know if we were gonna get shot, I didn't know, I mean, I certainly thought we were gonna get robbed, but who knew what was gonna happen? And Rachel was in the back with this woman, uh, Ashley. And she's, she's from South Carolina. And um, she says, Rachel, we need to pray. And she grabs Rachel's hand, squeezes her hand. And they both bow their heads. And about 30 seconds later, Ashley squeezes her hand and says, I mean out loud, I need to hear what you're saying. <laughs> she wanted to share the burden. She wanted to be real. She wanted to cast her cares with Rachel saying, on the Lord. <laughs> it's, it's, quite a, it's funny now. I wasn't laughing then. 
but, but it was to me, it's this beautiful picture of, you know, just very simply grab, grab your partner's hand, your fellow believer's hand and cast your cares on the Lord. You know, just lay it all out there. Lord, we are being, we're being attacked. You know, who knows what's going to happen here? <clears throat> and the Lord delivered us. Um, but, it's, but it's a cute little picture of, um, of what we're called to do. And, and do it together if we can, right? And it was right there in the car on whatever street that was. <laughs> um, but back to Scripture. We see some examples of this in Scripture. So why don't I just read very briefly in Mark chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. There's a man who brings his um, demon-possessed son to Jesus. And it's a very relatively short passage here, but I'll just read a bit to you because I think it's instructive around this being real with the Lord. Um, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you do anything, take pity on, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus answered, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And there's an exclamation point at the end of the verse. I mean, so he's being real with Jesus. He's looking Jesus in the eye saying, yes, I, I, I believe, but I still have some doubt. And that's okay. And Jesus goes on to heal the boy. And this is what we're called to do, to be real and honest with God. He wants us to admit, yes, Lord, I believe in you, but there are some gaps and I know you can fill them. But it's that honesty and that rawness that he wants us to, to have. And there's another passage I just want to read. Um, and I would encourage you to spend a lot of time in this passage if you could. Um, it's Second Chronicles chapter 20. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's an amazing story of God's faithfulness. But listen, I'm just going to read a few verses here. <clears throat> and what I want you to notice is the similarities of this prayer from Jehoshaphat centuries before and what the believers pray in Acts 4. And so I'll read to you uh, verses 5 and 6 and then 10 through 12 of this Second Chronicles chapter 20. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. And then he goes on to say, but now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so that they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Amazing, real, raw, crying out in the assembly to God, declaring who he is. Oh, Lord, God of our fathers, you know the God who is in heaven? Sounds a lot like what the believers prayed, right? And then to finish, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Sounds like verse 29 of Acts chapter 4, which I've now lost briefly, where... The believers say, consider their threats. Now, Lord, consider their threats. So 
what are they doing in both of these cases? They're inviting God into their circumstances, which again is what we're called to do. Consider their threats. You're with us. Consider their threats. Our eyes are upon you. They know that God will act. God will act because they know God. They know him through scripture. They know him through their own lives. They know he will act. So they're inviting him in. They're expecting him to act. And that's the last point. So the first was declaration. The second was observation. I might have missed saying that, but they observe what's around them and they just tell God about what they're seeing. These men are attacking us. And they expect. I think it's interesting in this prayer. There is no question. It's not a question mark in it. It's only the imperative voice that's used. Peter at one point seems to be commanding God what to do, right? Stretch out your hand. He's not asking him. He's telling him. It's a sign of his faith. We have to have faith when we pray, obviously. And clearly, he has that faith, which we see here. But he's asking, or he's telling, as a child would, a parent. Why? Because he knows who he is, and he knows who God is. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that we have a spirit of power. Not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. Peter knows that. Peter's seen the spirit, experienced the spirit, been filled with the spirit, and will be again at the end of this passage. <clears throat> but he doesn't ask God. He tells him. In Romans uh, chapter 8, one of the best chapters in the whole Bible, uh, verses 14 and 15, we're told that we're sons of God, or daughters, keep it in context, but it meant more in those days. Your heirs, sons, spirits of sonship. It goes back to that spirit of power. And it's the same spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. That intimacy, that familiarity, that oneness with God the Father. That again, Peter and the believers knew that they had because they knew who they were and they knew who God the Father was in their lives. And then I think it's amazing, which is very easy to miss, what he asks for and what he doesn't ask for. When we look at the end of this prayer, we're told he doesn't ask for protection. Again, he's just been hauled before the Sanhedrin. These are the same people, and they're named the same people that were responsible for killing Jesus. The same people that ultimately Peter was ashamed to be even known to be friends with Jesus around. And now he's basically not asking for protection after they threatened him. He's asking to go back to the very same situation that landed him in this place in the first place. <laughs> right? Look at verse 30. He says, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Isn't that what he did in the last chapter? He stretched out his hand to perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And then he got in trouble. And he was in prison, and he probably was close to being killed or flogged. And now he's asking God to do the same thing. Wow. That's oneness. That's intimacy. That's boldness. Because he knows the Father. I think it's... <clears throat> um, we, thank you. Where are you? Thank you so much for the songs. And worshiping the name of Jesus, shouting Yahweh was, I hope, awesome for all of you. It was awesome for me. And we can't ignore that here, right? 
I'm sure you did your homework and that's why we had it on the screen. But in chapters three and four, the name is referenced eight times. Eight times. So first Peter heals in the name. Then he says, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Even the Sanhedrin, their solution to the problem was what? We must tell them not to speak to anyone in this name anymore. That's their answer. They didn't flog them. They, didn't, they just said, don't speak in the name. They knew the power was in the name. So what's in a name? Is it just a word? I want to be careful here, and I want to point out, it's not just, it's not magic. It's not an incantation. It's not just saying the name, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's the person, the work, the identity. It's the essence of someone. And they know the essence of Jesus. So they're able to call on his name. It requires knowing, right? You have a familiar, in some, of, some languages, you have a familiar uh, with people and, and a formal. And even in English, we wouldn't call someone by their you know, Christian name if you didn't know them well, usually. Um, or in some circumstances. Uh, but, but the name of Jesus, the name Yahweh, has so much power in it. It, it healed, and it still heals today. Um, and again, I have a funny little story. Um, all my stories seem to involve cars, I just realized. Uh, we were on holiday in Italy, and we, with Rachel's, well, our family, three kids, and Rachel's parents, and I got one of these big people mover things, and we were kind of in this rustic place, and yours truly backed the, the van onto like a, a lip, essentially, so that one of the wheels was lifted off the ground, and it was on an incline, so the van wasn't moving. And um, <laughs> we tried all of these techniques, and nothing worked, and Rachel's father is a scientist, and he had all kinds of engineering solutions, and <clears throat> no amount of muscle could help. And finally, I just said, I'm going to get behind the wheel. You're all going to get behind the van. Rachel's father couldn't push, so he got out. And I said, on the count of three, we're all just going to cry out, Jesus! And we did, and the car went <laughs> right up onto the ledge as we had expected it to because we called the name Jesus. Now, it's a silly, silly little story. Not silly, because God cares about every detail of our lives, and we were calling on the one we knew. Everyone knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, sovereign, and he acted. But I say that because we knew someone else can call and say Jesus, and it doesn't mean a thing. It's not a prayer. But saying Jesus, crying out Yahweh, is a prayer in itself. It was then, and it is today. But again, this requires intimacy and oneness, bold asking and expectation. And I think to drive the oneness point home, the last little um, passage that I'll leave you with or we'll read together, um, John 17, where Jesus prays with his disciples toward the end of his life. He prays this amazing, amazing prayer. I'd encourage you again to spend some time in it. But I'm just going to read a couple of verses. <clears throat> he says, in verse 11, verses 11 and first half of 12. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one 
as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. It's almost as if it's hard to, to disentangle the two, the son and the father. They're so one, right? He even uses that word, one. But the, Jesus is essentially praying in his own name, which is the father's name, the name you gave me. Your name, the name you gave me. It's, it's, it's kind of mystical in a sense, right? But it, it's a sign of that oneness, of that familiarity, of that intimacy of the father and the son. And his motive is perfectly pure in asking If you go back to the very first verse of that chapter, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So he's asking the Lord for provision and praying for his, not even himself so much, but to be glorified so that the father may be glorified. His motive is pure in asking. And it's this intimacy and purity of motive, that oneness that enabled Jesus to pray and utter probably the most simple but powerful prayer ever in the garden when he said father if you are willing take this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done that's intimacy that's oneness and because he was able to utter that prayer of complete unity with the father the work of redemption was completed And the Spirit was poured out on all of God's people. We have been adopted as his children. And we too can call him Abba Father. And we can cry out to him and know that he hears us. He delights in us. That he will answer us because of Jesus. Amen. Let me just pray. Lord, thank you for this passage again. Thank you for opening our hearts, and I pray that your spirit would continue to work in us as we carry on with the service here, and as we leave tonight and go about our weeks, Lord, that your spirit would continue to soften us and to fill us afresh, that we may glorify you and walk more closely with you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.